the, the dilemma that we, we find ourselves in can be really summarized with, uh, with one word. And I think that word is pride. It started with uh, one of the most beautiful angels that God had ever created. He, uh, he was most wise. He was the most stunning. He had the greatest authority. Um, and he was also the one out of all of them that chose pride because he wanted it all. And after God kicked Lucifer out of heaven, Lucifer, Satan, he made it his goal to just continue to defy God and, and totally to discredit and destroy anything that God was involved in in any way he possibly could. And, uh, and so that was the beginning. That same angel, that fallen angel, showed up in the garden. And, and he started to, to lure man and woman to, uh, to the very same pride that he had chosen. And, and we fell for it. We took it. We ate the whole deal. Hook, line, and sinker. And here is, as I'm reflecting on this, kind of the irony of it is that God created a magnificent earth, and here on earth, out of everything that he did, we are the most wise. You could say that we're the most stunning of all his creations, that, that we have been given, we know this, that we've been given the most authority in all of creation. And with all of our, our talent and our innovation and our adventurous spirit and our abilities to, to love and be rational and our uh, ability to experience emotions and to create and to feel and to, to rationalize, all of this stuff that, that we, among creation, there's nothing else equal to us because the Bible says we are made in the image of Him. And it is that very intellect that we see in the Bible that Satan, Lucifer himself, went after. It was that intellect that he preyed upon. So back to the garden, he tempted Adam, he tempted Eve. And the two of them ultimately chose eternal separation from God. They embraced pride. And since that time, throughout all of history, that, that has set a, a crash course. And we have been trying ever since, as men and women, to try to rectify that situation. We, we've been trying to, to rally our hearts and try to fix this brokenness that's going on inside. And we've been, we've been trying to separate ourselves from, from the fact that we, we tried to upstage God. And you don't actually have to look very far in history to see some of our attempts. Greece, Greece said it this way, be wise, know yourself. Rome had their own saying. They said, be strong, discipline yourself. Epicureanism says, be sensuous, enjoy yourself. Psychology says, be confident, fulfill yourself. Later on, communism says, be collective, secure yourself. Humanism says, says, be capable, trust yourself, pride. 
But all the way throughout history, pride says, be superior and promote yourself. And on and on and on and on throughout history, the whole entire quest of man has continued to try to rally. We've tried to rally our hearts and face this plight of sin that we find ourselves in. And, and it's my estimation that no, no wonder people are confused. <laughs> because if you pick any thought dish from this smorgasbord of, of human philosophy that I just read and digest it completely, you're going to find out that you'll find yourself suffering from the worst case of, of this, this spiritual, emotional indigestion that we, we could possibly imagine. Because it may smell good, human philosophy, and it might even satisfy this rhetorical, uh, spiritual palate that we have during times when we, con- we consume it, but it totally leaves us hungry, it leaves us uneasy, it leaves us searching for more answers and, and something else to satisfy, and in the ad- end, we attempt to fill this inner vacuum of our souls with, with, with really what it boils down to is self-protection, this self-preservation, this self fulfillment, this self-gratification, call it whatever you want, just to please and secure and, and promote ourselves. And at the core of it, that's pride. And the Bible says that is the very thing that will end up destroying us. But in reality, it's the very thing that we fight against. We, we fight for this need to overcome, when really the person that we need to overcome is ourselves and the sin within and the darkness that's reflected back to us in the scripture about who we have become because of the choices that we have made. And it all started with this embrace of pride. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and 13 Spells it out like this. Paul says, you know the story of how Adam landed us here in this dilemma we're in. He's asking a question and almost kind of stating, you you know. (laughs) If you're alive and well, if you're breathing, you understand where we've been and how we actually made it to this point right here. But he decides to recap just in case. First, sin. Then death. And no one exempt from either either sin or death. Obviously, it it was never God's plan for for us to die, for human beings to to die. But it was a result of this sin that Paul says here. First, the sin that entered this this world. And inevitably, this gift of life that, that we all have, that we pass unto our children, well, because Adam passed it to us, what we see here in Romans is that It includes this whole entire sting of death that we give to give to the next generation because no one is exempt. And we all have those two characteristics in common, sin, then death. But here's the crux in verse 13. That sin, he says, that that very act, that Call it whatever you want, that decision for, for, for self-fulfillment, right? Wasn't, wasn't that what Adam and, and Eve were thinking? 
the self-fulfillment, self-enlightenment, that, that I could somehow just upstage the spot that I'm in for a moment and become a little bit better and push myself on and further further what I'm doing or, or who I am or who I've become, this self-gratification, this, this self-pleasure, whatever it is, that sin, Paul says, that sin disturbed relations with God. In what? In everything and every one. No one is exempt. But the extent... The extent of the disturbance, see, it wasn't clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. He's talking about the law there, and he goes on to say, so death, and it's almost like Paul just pauses here for a second and kind of surrounds his next statement with parentheses, and he says, so death, and by the way, what is that, he says, this huge abyss, this huge abyss separating us from God. That, that's death, so death dominated the landscape. And that's the problem that we have to focus on today here at K2, here in this, right now, here in your life, in my life. The problem is we've been overcome. We have been been overwhelmed by our sin. And what does Paul say? It disturbed our relationship with God. It invaded every aspect of our life, leaving us with pain and and dissatisfaction and hopelessness. And literally, our relationship with God once was intact, falling apart, completely dashed, falling apart. Two two chapters early in Romans, we're in Romans 5 right now with this verse, Two, two chapters early in Romans 3. Paul uses two other descriptive words to kind of talk to us about this plight that we have fallen into. And he says, our sin has led to two other things. One, it has totally, totally led to the fact that you are alienated from God. Meaning, we're totally cut off. We're estranged from God. We're separated. He says, your sin has led to alienation. And not only that, but your sin has led to the fact that you are now an enemy of God's meaning we're hostile, we're hostile, we are, we're in total opposition to who God is with our sin. And not just, not just enemies and hostile in our actions because of what we've done physically, but hostile, the scripture says, in our minds. At the very core of who we are spiritually, emotionally, in our minds, we are hostile enemies of God. Why? Because the impossible problem that we face with all our ingenuity as as mankind and all our disciplines and accomplishments and knowledge and all that stuff, the problem is, according to Scripture, we are overcome by our sin natures and there's nothing we can do about it. And we've spent all of history trying to figure out how to rally that. And we're, we're out of relationship with God. Robert Ingersoll was a bold, and he was a brilliant agnostic for his time, led in the field of, of, of that, and he spent many years opposing, many years of life just opposing this whole notion of God and attacking the idea of who God is. And on his deathbed, as he was done with his life, he muttered these words, and they were captured, and he said this. Life is a narrow veil between the cold and the barren peaks of two eternities. We strive in vain to look beyond the heights. We cry aloud, and the only answer 
is the echo of our wailing cry. And then he died. And the reality, the reality of coming into this Good Friday and coming into this whole entire season that we celebrate, the reality is that we are in harsh separation with God. What does Paul say? Separated by a huge abyss because sin leads to death. Here's the twist, though. Here's the remarkable twist. Not only did Satan show up in the garden, but he shows up all over the place through Scripture. He shows up later, Satan himself, trying to do the exact same thing to Jesus Christ that he did to Adam and Eve. Before Jesus started his ministry, he went out and he took 40 days in the desert and he prayed and he fasted and he spent time preparing himself for this, this ministry that he was embarking on to. And, and, and Satan showed up and he tried. He tried to tempt Jesus. And he actually did it. When you look at the temptation that Jesus faced during that time, there's, there's like three categories that, that Satan tempted Jesus on. And what's really ironic is you, you look at these three categories and I see him in my life. I see Satan again trying to tempt me today. Listen to this. He tried to tempt Jesus in the area of physical needs and desires. Oh, come on, Jesus. Come on, just feed your physical needs. Just give in to your desires. He tried to tempt Jesus into possessions and power. Rise up, Jesus, play your God card right now. Establish who you are, come on. And Jesus said no, he rejected him. And Satan tried to trick Jesus and tempt Jesus into pride. And Jesus resisted. And at the end of the scene in Scripture, in the Gospels, it says that when the devil was finished tempting Jesus, he left him for a more opportune time. I'm sure there were many, but my guess is that this night, this Good Friday, this night when Jesus was preparing for what was about ready to take place was one of those times. The day when this whole entire spiritual battle, the day when, when the old covenant runs into this new covenant of God, the day when all love comes to a head and the battle just grinds right on the, on the forefront, and Jesus says, I will establish my plan through Jesus Christ. I think this is the opportune time. And I just I want to sit in this scene for just a few moments before we go on tonight. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 and following. It says this, they being the disciples and Jesus, they, they came, came to an area called Gethsemane. And Jesus told his disciples, he said, sit here while I pray. And this garden literally translates as, as olive press. It, it probably was an, an orchard of trees, olive trees. It was below the Mount of Olives area. And perhaps there was a present, uh, a press present there which they would use to, to squeeze the oil. And here they, they were, Jesus came to pray. And there's plenty of drama here. The, uh, the leaders... The elders of Jerusalem are, are at this very moment plotting to kill Jesus. They've, they've actually issued a warrant for his arrest. Jesus had, had left Jerusalem at this point and he had, 
He had gone under the cover of darkness to go out with his disciples and to pray. And speaking of his disciples, I'm sure they were just physically and emotionally drained, exhausted from, from trying to comprehend everything that was going on. And Jesus was telling them again and again, and trying to comprehend and, as to what was going to about ready to transpire. And instead of watching, <laughs> they fall asleep. In verse 33, he being Jesus took Peter and James and John with him. He plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. Why agony? When I read that, I'm like, why, Jesus, why are you, why are you in agony? Are you in agony because you're scared? I'd be, but I don't think that's what's going on. I don't, I don't think that's the case for Jesus. I don't think agony is overwhelming him because he's, he's, he's afraid or he's scared. I, I don't think it's overwhelming him because he's, he's afraid to endure the pain. Not likely. Lesser men had been crucified on the cross. So I don't believe his agony was out of fear of the cross or pain. I believe the agony was out of this, this situation was coming up where he was going to experience alienation. This separation from God that he's going to experience, the, the disunity that God was going to turn his back on Jesus because Jesus was going to take my alienation, my, my abyss of sin, my, my horrible wrongs, everything I've done, everything you've done, the whole entire weight of the world is going to be on Jesus. And here he is in pure agony. Literally, Jesus taking on the weight of everything I live every day, bearing the human condition. And as this event drew near, I think it became horrifying to Jesus. And we see this very human side of him start to appear here. And I think he naturally just kind of starts to recoil at the prospect of being separated from God. Verse 34, and he told them, he says, I feel bad enough right now to die. Stay here and keep vigil with me. What I love here is that he's not running. He never ran. He's not attempting to take off. He, he could have. He left under darkness. He could have kept walking. But he faced it. Verse 35, going a little ahead, he fell to the ground and he prayed for a way out. Papa, Father, you can, can't you? You can get me out of this. Take this cup away from me, but please, not what I want. What do you want? He says, Papa here, in Aramaic, he would have actually said Abba, which is this term that only... Children would say to their dads, it's an intimate term, Abba, Father, Daddy, help me. You can get me out of this. In other words, Jesus is giving a nod here. He's saying, you're all-powerful. You're, you're omniscient. You're, you, you, you can make this happen. You're sovereign. You're con you have control over everything that I'm about ready to go through. You can get me out of this, but not what I want but what you want. And I love that because it's, 
It's not, it, you can hear the anguish and the, and the struggle that Jesus is having internally, but he's not trying to get out of his mission here. He's not, he's not trying to backpedal. It's, he's, it's not sin for him to become a human for a moment here and to express this, this agony of what's about ready to, to transpire. What he's expressing is this true emotion and, and feeling that, that, that he's going to become separated and alienated from God extremely quickly. Yet in no way does he deny or rebel against what God is about ready to do. Your will, not mine. What an amazing picture of unity. This, this perfect submission to God, this perfect example of, of humility, which, which flies totally in contrast to our pride. Well, the scene continues. Verse 37, he came back and he found them asleep. And he said to Peter, Simon, you went to sleep on me. Can't you stick it out with me for a single hour? Stay alert, be in prayer so you don't enter the danger zone without even knowing it. Don't, don't be naive. Part of you is eager, ready, ready for anything in God, but another part is as lazy as an old dog sleeping by the fire. He then went back to pray and he prayed for Prayed the same prayer. Verse 40, returning, he found them again sound asleep. They, they simply couldn't keep their eyes open and they didn't have a plausible excuse. He came back a third time and he said, are you going to sleep all night? No, you've slept long enough. Time is up. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hand of sinners. Just my own personal reflection, but I find it really interesting here that in both battles, the battle with Adam and Eve and the temptation that they faced in the garden, and this battle where Jesus is, is struggling in prayer, facing crucifixion, both take place in just this beautiful garden, this, this solitude. And in both stories, I find it interesting that we were unable, that man was unable to stay the course because we can't save ourselves. We can't do it. And redemption only comes at this moment through Jesus Christ when he is contrasted to our sinful nature. Because where we exercise this self-protection, that you can just look around anywhere in Salt Lake City and across the nation and around this world and see people just exercising self-protection, that I need to protect myself, in this moment, Jesus totally gives himself up. Where, where we live for self-preservation, in control of our life, Jesus sacrifices. Where, where we live for self-fulfillment, Jesus, his only desire at this moment is to totally fulfill the will of his Father. Where, where we live for self-gratification, Jesus, is all, all his gratification in this moment comes from glorifying who? The Father. His sacrifice right here in this moment was deliberate. It was calculated. But the key is is that Jesus overcame this temptation to save himself. He overcame this temptation. He took all the sin upon himself to cleanse, to, to, to usher in forgiveness for you and I, for, for reconciling, uh, reconciling our relationship between God and, and us, to give us this, the power through him, through him, changing history to be able to overcome That's good news.
tonight, I want to camp on that for a little while here and invite you to, to reflect with us upon this incredibly selfless sacrifice that Jesus willingly walked into. Tonight to remember as you sit here unremarkable, unbelievable grace, unsurpassed power, this, 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 this depth of forgiveness that leads to life for you and, you and me and that through his death that we live. And that I'm, I'm no longer, when I'm, in, when I'm in Jesus Christ, I'm no longer a slave to sin. And that from this point on in history, it changed. It changed. And that through his crucifixion, we receive freedom. And that can only come by experiencing a day like today. And from the moment that mankind bit into the apple and chased pride, do you understand that there was a plan in place? <laughs> that unbelievable love of God, the plan went into place. And from that point, God promised to crush the head of the serpent. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 God, we hear this, God made him, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Tonight we want to take you into this moment to experience that incredible sacrifice, to experience the the willing, selfless act that Jesus willingly walked into, that he was the ultimate sacrifice for you and I, forgiveness of sins, that he took the weight of our sin upon himself. And I'd like to invite you to reflect on everything that this moment means for victory. And after tonight, when we're done here, um, I'd like to invite you to just dismiss yourself and to go in a, in a real quietness, and just a peacefulness, reflecting on this supreme sacrifice that we did nothing to deserve <laughs> and we've done nothing to earn, but that was so freely given to us that flies in the face of our pride and self-protection from a loving God that is just smitten with you. He has triumphed over sin. Bow your head with me. Let's pray. Jesus, tonight we make you the center of the center of it all. The center of our honor tonight. We glorify you. It is with thanksgiving that we almost reflect on this moment of incredible agony that you went through. 
that it actually should have been us that deserved all the punishment and the, the crucifixion and the whipping and, and all the torture that you endured. This should have been us. But because of your supreme love, you took our place. God, thank you for freedom. <laughs> thank you that through your act and your sacrifice on the cross that you have given us life, that you have paid it, that there's nothing more to do it. It's done. There's nothing we could do. Thank you. We love you. We worship you. Tonight we remember you. Amen.